Mindset Athlete Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. I'm a two-time Paralympian and owner of James Robert Fitness, which is an online training, nutrition, and mindset coaching business. First of all, I'd like to thank Lauren Williams for suggesting this quote to the show. An athlete is a mindset. It's how you prepare, think, and execute. Not because of some elite status or physical stature. Anybody can be an athlete. By Chris Hoth. And each week on The Mindset Athlete, we like to bring you inspirational athletes, a message, or experts talking about human optimization to teach you how to change your perception of your mindset and become 1% better. And on today's show, I've got Robert Paler. In one moment, Robert was in the best day of his life, competing for a collegiate rugby national championship. In the next moment, his life changed forever. Robert suffered a spinal cord injury in the first minutes of the game and found himself face down in the turf, unable to move anything below his neck. His doctor told him he would never walk or move his hands for the rest of his life. Through an unbreakable vision and relentless determination, Robert is defying the odds. He's a graduate from the University of California at Berkeley. He's winning the fight to walk again and is sharing his methods of how to, he overcomes quadriplegia. So welcome on to the show, Robert. Thanks so much, James. I'm fired up for this. Oh, the pleasure is absolutely all mine. So let, let's start off the bat because ultimately you, I'm assuming, is, have not always been involved in rugby, be it because it's a minority mm-hmm. sport in the US. What mm-hmm. sports did you do in high school before that? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I didn't even know what rugby was or that it existed until I got to high school. So I just grew up playing like the big three American sports, football, basketball, baseball, and football was the one that I took to the most. And it was because it was contact. I loved hitting people. Um, I was a big dude. I was always like the tallest in my class, the biggest. That was just what played into my body and it played into my mindset um, was football. So I get to high school. I'm over in the Sacramento area of California, and uh, the high school I went to is Jesuit High School is what it's called, and it's number one or number two every single year for rugby. Um, like, number two is, like, a bad year for us, and you know, international teams would, like, come in on tours throughout the United States, and, like, they'd always stop in Sacramento to play against Jesuit, and I was, like, still playing basketball. And here I am, like a measly six five, right? And we had these guys who were like six eight, six ten. I was thinking, like, okay, well, I need to kind of find a new sport because even if I make this team, I'm just gonna like ride the pine. So all my buddies were playing rugby. They're like, Rob, you have to go out and try this. It's gonna be so much fun. And in football, I always had my hand in the dirt, you know. So I was playing on the line. I was never getting the ball. And they're like, oh yeah, we want you to go play eight man. And like, you're gonna be scoring a lot, and you're gonna be getting the ball a lot and you know you're going to be going around this field you're going to be making tackles and bouncing right back up and then you're on offense and you know I'm looking at the lineouts and the scrubs it's like it's just this unique exciting game and I just fell in love with it um I got MVP my first year playing and in high school and I just absolutely love the game so that became my thing was rugby my sophomore year of high school how long did you get get around of not being able to throw the ball forward <laughs> You know, that wasn't the issue. The issue for me was like managing energy because in football, once that whistle blows, you're going a hundred percent, you're giving everything you have. And then, you know, the next whistle blows and you're done and you know, you're resting, you go back to the huddle, you receive the play. 
and then you get out and you do it again. So I remember we had our first like kind of mock scrimmage, like inner squad scrimmage for rugby. And, you know, I'm out here like, and then they blow the whistle and I just start going. I mean, I'm like sprinting from sideline to sideline, like making tackles. I'm like getting up and like, you know, I'm on defense and like I put my hands in the rock and grab the ball. And they're like, no, you can't do that. I'm thinking, okay, what? You know, I'm learning the game, but the whole time I'm just like puffing and puffing going. And then it was like one minute in, I was just done. I was completely white. And I was just like, okay, this is not how you play this game. Because I saw all these other people around me, you know, they would, you know, they'd sprint when they needed to. And then when the moment wasn't there, they'd recollect their energy a little bit. And I'm thinking like, gosh, these guys are like lazy, but it just turns out I was dumb and I didn't know how to play this sport. But that was the hardest part in the beginning. It wasn't like so much, you know, trying to throw the ball forward like football, but just learning how to spend my energy. And if we, if we go right into how you got your quadriplegic injury, mm-hmm. how many times do you, do you replay that back in your mind and what could have been done differently obviously from an officiating perspective because i discussed about it off air of you were saying there was five instances of infringement which if you were to take it up a notch to professional ranks it would be wouldn't happen it wouldn't happen it'd be two maybe three definitely not and you're going to be pinged and that person's going to be spending 10 minutes on sitting down yeah i think about that moment every single day um, it's the moment that I'll remember better than anything for the rest of my life, really. Uh, the day was May 6, 2017, and I wake up. It's the day of the Collegiate Rugby National Championship in America, and I was starting at this point as a sophomore on the number one team in the nation. That's uh, UC Berkeley, Cal. Uh, very historied program, started back in the 1800s, which for us in America is as old as it gets, right? Um, it, it was very historied. It had a legacy, and I couldn't have been more excited. I wanted to maybe play professionally, you know, do all these things. The MLR was kind of starting up around this time. I was so excited. I had so much going for me. It was very early on in this game that was one minute in, the other team committed a penalty, and we kicking it a touch. So we're like five, six meters out. We were lethal in the mall. We were much bigger, much stronger than them. Everybody knew it was coming. So I was the front lifter. I lift our guy up, he gets it, come down, make my binds. And then immediately one player comes in with a side entry on my side. So here's infraction number one. He then binds me around my neck in a headlock, which at that time in 2017 was the year that they stated you can't like touch the head or neck without it being a yellow card. You cannot make contact in this region. The, you know, we're not playing advantage. Referee's blowing his whistle immediately you're getting carded. They're not calling anything. Two more players coming from the side. So what are we on number four now? The same guy who's also binding me around my neck hooks my leg up into the air. So we're on penalty number five. Another guy who is down at my hips, he slides down to my knees. He collapses this mall. And since I was pinned into this position, I just start riding all the way down to the ground, not knowing what's coming. And then my the crown of my head planted into the turf. My body went forward. My head stayed in that position. And then my face just slammed against my chest. Um, I snapped my neck. I just couldn't move or feel anything below my neck. It was that feeling, you know, when you like, you go to sleep, you wake up and then your arm's like totally asleep and you just can't feel it. It was like that, 
but my entire body and it was instantaneous and I was completely conscious. Uh, I knew exactly what had happened and that was I'm a quadriplegic and I just thought that for the rest of my life, this would be my reality because I had seen the stories on TV before where this happens to someone and they just don't ever move again. I'm thinking this is going to be me. Like I'm not going to go back to school. I'm not going to be able to go see my friends. I'm not going to like, you know, meet a girl, get married, start a family. I I didn't think I was going to be able to feed myself again. I was laying in that turf, but I could barely even breathe. And here's what's even crazier is that I was in this position. I looked like a corpse on the field, screaming as loud as I could, which wasn't that loud because I was very paralyzed. And the referee didn't even stop play. So they're like playing all around me. And, you know, there might be some hardos out there who are saying, you know, hey, if he's, if he's not like in the direct line of play, then play on. But, you know, we had a very seriously injured person out there. And that was another ridiculous thing. They're literally kicking the conversion over my body, you know, as I'm sitting there with medical attention. The only thing that stopped play was how we score on them. Uh, it was just ridiculous. My medical staff was having to like protect me from someone falling on me because if they did, then it would have got a lot worse or I could even die. Um, and then they started doing these tests, you know, Hey, you know, they're like moving my legs and it was the most surreal feeling ever. It felt like somebody else's legs were being moved. There was just no connection I had to the rest of my body. You know, they're saying, Robert, can you squeeze my hand? And I'm like, I'm going as hard as I can. And there's just nothing. It's like my whole body was just locked in cement, the ultimate form of claustrophobia right? Um, and then I got rushed into the hospital. We did all this med- medical imaging and the doctor's just like, Robert, you're never going to walk again. You're never going to move your hands. I mean, you'll be lucky if you can pick up a piece of pizza and bring it to your face. That's like you breaking the odds. And I want to say that's if you survive, because we recommend you go into emergency surgery right now because the swelling that's in your spinal cord if it continues, will continue to damage your situation. So we need to come in here through the front of your neck, which has got a lot of important real estate. If something goes wrong, you might not wake up. So here I am. I'm on the phone. I call my religious advisor right away. I'm just, I'm looking for some advice. I'm looking for some prayers. I'm freaking out. And the thing he told me then, I will never forget. He said, Robert, throughout this journey, there's going to be a lot of things that you can't control. But the one thing you always have complete control over is your mindset. So your ambition, your willingness to fight, to take on this challenge, accept the challenge every single day is up to you. As long as you have breath in your lungs and blood in your veins, you can control your mindset. And it stuck with me. It gave me a lot of peace knowing that in this situation, I'm going to be on my back. and There's going to be a lot of things I can't do. But the one thing I know I can do is take on the challenge. I don't have to sit back here helplessly and let these circumstances act upon me. I can make actions every single day that make me better. So that's what I did. I went into that surgery room, closed my eyes, and and that concluded May 6, 2017. Were there any times, obviously, even in the rehab uh, period or even before that, that you Mm -hmm. were very resentful towards the referee? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, at first we weren't really clear exactly what had happened. And 
just to start off right away, I don't truly blame the referee for what happened there because these malls, you know, they can be really dark and it happens so fast. Even if he did blow his whistle, that mall still might have collapsed and I might have got hurt. Um, it just, it, it's hard to call. It's hard to see. But I, we didn't even know what happened. So it was about two days later that we were looking at the game footage and there were people on the sidelines with their phones out and people taking pictures that gave this real clear image and video that what happened to me was completely illegal and completely preventable. And when I saw it, like, man, the referee didn't call anything. And not only that, but still to this day, the guy that broke my neck has not reached out to me. I, he's like never said, hey, man, I'm sorry about what happened to you. Um, he hasn't done anything. And at first, I wanted to be angry. I wanted to be pissed off. And I wanted those people to hurt like I've hurt. And I just realized, man, I have to forgive these people, whether they are sorry or not. I just realized that the more hate I gave to them, the more power I gave to them and the less power I could give to myself. It wasn't until I let go of that animosity that I could really focus on what I have to deal with. Because what happened on to, on, to me on that day, I can't change. There's no way I can go back and change that. The only thing I can do is change what I'm dealing with right now and forgiving those people was so important to my recovery um, because it gave the power back to me and ultimately i've seen some of the videos of you getting up out of the wheelchair um probably in your strength and conditioning facility at the university of berkeley Um, that's right why do you think that some people and and obviously when when i and i I asked you this before we started recording because i assumed well, scrum more so than, than a mall or a lineup going wrong. I thought, oh, Robert, front row. And then because of mm-hmm. the, the injury, you've lost the tonnage that the proper <laughs> foot, front row forward would have. That's from there. Do you, do you think because of what you were told in terms of the mindset of ultimately forgiving, which is very difficult to do, uh, yeah. and looking for more uh, empowering ways of using gratitude, to move forward, mm-hmm. which I think people don't always look at the power of positivity versus human, human, human nature to look at the bad in any circumstance. Mm-hmm. Do you think being told, and we'll go to the extreme of what you've said, of not being able to lift a piece of pizza up to your face, did you use that as a little bit of a chip on your shoulder? Or I'm going to be an outlier to this situation. I'm going to be somebody different. I'm not going to be the norm when it comes to this disability. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I knew exactly what that doctor was doing that day. And that was, he was trying not to give me false hope. You know, he didn't want me to go around thinking this is all going to be okay because it wasn't going to be okay. You know, I wasn't ever going to play rugby again. Um, I wasn't ever going to be go running around and doing the things that I used to do. That just was the reality of the situation. So giving someone false hope, that's no good. But giving someone false hopelessness, I think, is even worse, right? I mean, think where I would be today if I listened to what that doctor told me and I took it as fact. I mean, I might not even be alive, let alone getting up out of my wheelchair and walking because in that first stage, I couldn't even swallow anything for a month. I literally couldn't eat or drink. We had an IV in so I could get my fluids 
And then we had a tube that went up my nose and down to my stomach. And it took three days to get in there because I'd broken my nose a couple of times playing rugby. It just, it wasn't a straight shot, you know, and my gosh, I had to fight through that. I got pneumonia on the second day. And here's the dangerous thing is I couldn't even cough. I mean, I could barely even breathe. My cough was like, <sighs> so we just had every three hours, a respiratory therapist would come in there. They'd loosen up all the mucus in my lungs. And then it was just 30 minutes to three hours, anywhere in between there of just slamming down on my chest. We'd just get a big old dude to come in there, put his hands on my diaphragm and just push everything down. It was like death was sitting with me there in the room, just waiting for me to quit. My doctors are telling me that I might not even survive. And if I didn't put everything I had into that situation, there's no way I'd be here today. It's just not possible. I mean, even with giving everything that I had, I lost 60 pounds in a month. Um, I was playing number five. So I was in the second row. And, you know, here I am like six foot five, 245 pounds. Like I was kind of the workhorse on the team. People weren't giving me the ball all the time, but I was going ruck to ruck to ruck. I was locking down these scrums. You know, if, if there was a big guy coming up with the ball, I was expected to put my shoulder down and hit them. And immediately I'm just like looking down and I see my legs like day to day, just atrophying, going away. All these years I put in hitting the weight room, you know, eating like a madman, just trying to build up my body. It was just shot. It was absolutely shot. Um, I needed hope to get through those moments. I needed that. And where I got it was from this rugby community. It was immense, the amount of support that I've received. I had people from all over the world um, reaching out to my GoFundMe, and they're making financial contributions because, as you can imagine, the expenses um, here with the private medical system in America is immense. If you break your neck, it is not a good financial decision to make to break your neck. And I received the financial support, but what helped me just as much, if not more, was that emotional support from people all over the world saying, Robert, I don't know you, but I saw your story and you've given me faith. You've helped me access a level of gratitude in my life to where I wake up every single day and I'm working out. And I'm going to work more excited and I'm reconnecting with relationships. You've just shown me how precious life is. Um, you've touched my heart. You've changed my life. It just made it to where I had these few bad apples saying, Robert, you can't do this. But I had thousands of other people who believed in me. And that's what pushed me. I, I'm a firm believer that you have to believe you can do something for it to happen. Uh, that's the first step I think everyone needs to take to overcome a challenge is just simply believe that you can. Because who's going to put in the work if they don't think that's going to happen? I'd agree with you totally with that, that, that sentiment. Do you think, obviously, you talked about, obviously, the gratitude that you, you were given from all corners of the globe. Yeah. Do you think rugby to the T of, you know, unity of motion that, obviously, the world's rugby union um, uses, do you think it echoes it with your story? Yeah, the rugby community was just absolutely beautiful. And, you know, these kinds of injuries, they happen every single day. You know, there's every day people are breaking their necks and they're doing it in car crashes, diving accidents, sports, lots of them in sports. And almost nowhere do you see the amount of support that I've received. You know, I'm just a kid over in Eldorado Hills, California, who was playing in a collegiate rugby national championship and something really bad happened to me. But the thousands of people that reached out to me, that just has a testament 
to what the community and game of rugby is. Because here in America, nowhere do you find where people go out and compete in something as physical and violent of a sport as rugby. And then afterwards, like go grab some drinks or, you know, if they're underage, you know, like having a meal together or something like that. You don't see that like in football, you know, we would be just busting each other up the entire game. And then afterwards, like, I don't even want to shake these guys' hands afterwards. Sometimes, you know, like you're the guy who was punching me in the stomach after like, after I got tackled. Um, you just don't see that. But in rugby, it was something different. Uh, even when something of this severity didn't happen. And when it did happen, there were a couple bad apples in this situation. Um, you know, the guy who broke my neck never reaching out to me. Um, that's not what a rugby player would do. Um, the coach never reached out to me. And that's not what a person in a leadership position in rugby would do. And here's a whole nother can of worms. USA Rugby wouldn't even say that what happened to me was a penalty. Uh, we can talk about that right after this, because for six months they had this investigation and then eventually came back saying that Robert was actually at fault because his head was below his shoulders in the mall. Um, you know, not willing to admit the fact that I was pinned into that position. There were a couple of bad apples, but for those few bad apples, there was just a world of support. I'm sitting here in my living room right now and I got the USA Eagles jersey over here. You know, Danny Barrett, who's this total all-star for the US 17. Um, his Hong Kong sevens jersey right there. He's got the, it's got the grass on the shoulder and all, um, you know, world cup winning all blacks signed Jersey right there with the whole team. Uh, I have jerseys that I could stack up to my ceiling and it goes all the way from the New Zealand all blacks to some Modesto rugby club in the middle of nowhere of California. It's just amazing. It, it's such a beautiful community. Well, those are those, the two that you just mentioned, you know, world cup winning team. And yeah. ultimately, well, it's always got a target on its back as a, as a team. Uh, they're the team to be every single year, year in, year mm-hmm. out. Ultimately, they might underachieve, and that's why they don't win at every World Cup. Mm-hmm. But of the one you mentioned, the Hong Kong Sevens is in itself is a pretty, pretty prestigious, um, Sevens event on on the calendar, and ultimately yeah. this this year didn't happen because of where, where we're living at. Um, yeah, but I think all of them, from the the sense that it's given probably rugby a new lease of life, it gives a, the, the the developing athlete an opportunity, it gives the developing nations a fair crack at at winning things. Um, it's not always uh-huh. the big, I call them the big eight. Of, of, you know, the Australia, New Zealand, South Africa and the Southern Hemisphere, Argentina as well. And obviously yeah. the European powers of Wales, Scotland, England, uh, and France. Um, mm-hmm. it gives the, the likes of the US, um, who's one of the minnows you wouldn't think of who does quite well? Kenya. Kenya, yeah, you wouldn't think yeah. of them being track athletes on a rugby pitch, but they when they they give as good as they get. Uh, when oh it yeah, comes to that, um, Fiji's so you, a force. Oh yeah, but those, those South, South Sea Island boys are some big brutes. Uh, you can yeah, see why you they can get see that all right all around the world. Uh, oh yeah, it, you know the the tanks on the wing or the big boys up front. Uh, oh yeah, they just built as. You know, big houses um, f- from a very young. So whatever they're eating on the islands, uh, I think most people will want some of that. 
Yeah, I got to get some of that. Maybe I'll be standing up walking in no time if I get a little bit of that stuff. <laughs> totally. No, it's it's good for the sport. Um, it's good for every nation that it touches, bringing that kind of community over. Um, I think it's been so good for America. Um, it's just, it's loving, it's supported. And it's kind of this unique thing in America or these sort of like countries where it's more of a minor sport is there's a real connection when you tell someone like, you know, Hey, yeah, I played rugby and, you know, it can be like some 50, 60 year old guy who just played a couple years in college or, you know, someone who really rose the ranks and has been a respectable player. Um, there's a real connection and tight knit community because we are a different breed and there aren't a lot of us around there. So that's also kind of a unique thing too, um, that it builds this really tight knit community. So how do you think with, with, uh, cause you touched upon obviously the, the MLR, coming into yeah. um, I think real existence now. Yeah. And you were talking about, you know, the meme aspect of it. How do you think with with the rugby element, how do you think they're gonna do it differently than obviously the MLS or the big three? How how do you think it's gonna try and excite the US pop population and the and the viewing public to be able to well we're not gonna do it like you guys because I don't we don't deem that we need to. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the MLS model is sort of what they're going for. Um, you know, we're trying to get as much talent as we can domestically, but then bringing in these players from overseas who are on the ends of their careers and uh, and still want to continue to play rugby. And, you know, we can throw a little bit of money at them, maybe, to entice them to come over here and build a respectable league. Um, you know, really get some good names in here, build some credibility that way. Um, you know, they've had great TV licensing deals, which have given the sport a lot of exposure over here. Um, just getting the name out. And in the end of the day, when a lot of people watch rugby for the first time, they're in, they're excited. They want to learn more. It's a cool sport and it's very different than what you find here in America. You know, when we watch a soccer game, um, you know, most people don't really enjoy it that much. They kind of, they watch the world cup, but they're thinking, okay, nothing's happening. And now it's just like, you know, it's nil nil. And people don't really enjoy watching that. I think here in America, it's just like not as deep rooted in the culture. Of course, there's a strong soccer community, but, um, not as strong as football or basketball, but rugby, um, there's always something going on. You no, know? it's, it's almost like, that what that's what hurts it in a way because there's not enough time to run commercials and make a bunch of money off of it like you can these other sports like football, basketball, baseball. Um, that's almost what hurts the game. But I think much of it is just getting the exposure out there and getting people to just know what the game is because here in California, it's getting pretty popular, but you go to a lot of these southern, midwestern states. You know, it's funny. We were traveling over to Clemson, which is in South Carolina, you know, big football town. And they got this Southern hospitality over there. You know, we're all wearing like our track suits and we got Cal rugby on our shirts. And I remember I got off the airplane. We're in Atlanta, Georgia, getting ready to bus up South Carolina. And, uh, and I'm wearing my stuff. And they're like, Oh, look at your fancy outfit. And like, you know, they're like, you know, rugby, like what, what game is that? And like, is that the game of the sticks? And I'm like, no, it's not the game of the sticks. You know, it's a totally different thing, but. Um, it's just not known even what the sport is right now in a lot of these places. So just the exposure alone, I think will help. You think it's educating people because ultimately rugby came before American football. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a very foreign game when you try and compare it directly to football. They're you know they're wondering, okay, why are they not throwing it forwards right now? Why are they kicking? Um, you know, why is there a penalty being called now? Okay, now they're like throwing these people up in the air. Like, what's going on? These are just things that you don't really see um, in American football, and it's so different. So it takes some time. Like, you kind of got to hold their hand and, like, guide them through the process a little bit. So a lot of times when you watch it on TV, they'll, like, give a little breakdown during a, you know, a stoppage of play and say, okay, here's what a scrum is. And, um, you know, they're, they're have, really having to explain the basics. There's a lot of education that's going to have to happen. Well, it still even happens in the, in the more established nations. You know, mm. you played in the scrum. And when, you know, ultimately you've got a pundit or a commentator that's played in one of those positions in the scrum, they'll talk, they'll badmouth the referee. It's like you just make, you've just flipped a coin here and you've given a penalty one way or the other. And ultimately, like you, like you said, all of the, the naughty shenanigans that goes into, in a sense, it's cheating or getting one over yeah. in your position to, to ultimately make them make a mistake. A lot yeah. of subtleties, but ultimately a lot of referees haven't been players themselves. Um, well, have you ever seen a ball going straight out of scrum? Even from, from day one, they said it must go in. I think maybe at the very beginning, they might have gone in. It's 50-50 parity. Yeah, now, and then the hooker any, told them to stop doing that. Any, any time in professional rugby, it's going backwards. It's giving the, the right. attacking team an advantage from that. So he's like, well, that's not straight. Uh, mm-hmm. The light, the line out is probably another one. You think, uh-huh. well, from a television perspective, that doesn't look straight to me. Um, right. But I guess they probably give it a little bit of allowances because, like, we well, can't be down the middle every single time because ultimately yeah. you lose some of that possession. Um, so I guess yeah, they give it a little bit of leeway in terms of that. But obviously, if you give an athlete an inch, they'll take a mile. Yeah, side entries in the mall too. That's another one you see a lot. You know, sometimes like you're just running at that thing and it's not going to be okay. I need to like back up and make sure I'm coming in here the right way. Well, yeah, there's nuances bit, too. It's probably similar. But I'll try. Oh, how would you? And from another sport perspective, it's a cynical foul. You you take one for the team. Ultimately, yeah. yours is it's massively gone wrong. Yeah. But that's why you would see probably side entries. It's like well. We might as well take three points. Yeah. Or ship three right. points, then five or seven. Right. Yeah. Sometimes that does happen. And I think that's maybe even what happened to me in that mall. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was something like, you know, bring this mall down by any means necessary. Um, you know, where, because we were lethal in those malls. That thing was going in. If they didn't make those moves, we would have scored three seconds later. Um, it was moving. And uh, I think at first they were just trying not to make contact at all. You know, they were trying to draw a penalty there. And then like one guy bound up. So we we're just like, you know, we're rolling through this thing. And now they're all like scrambling into the small because one guy screwed the entire thing up. Um, but I think that might've been partially what happened to me. You know, you got guys coming from the side, you got someone binding me around the neck. He's lifting up my legs. They're just trying to get that mall to the ground is what they're doing. Because, you know, then, you know, maybe they'll have another shot or, you know, what happens. Um, that could have been what happened to me, too. Do you think that's, would it, would it be in a minority sport from a collegiate perspective, it, it hurts it? Because if that's one of the big three, 
every aspect of that play is videotaped and it's got multiple camera angles that ultimately officials yeah. can look at. Yeah, I was lucky because we just so happened to have fans and kind of independent photographers taking videos from the try line from or the end zone footage because the game footage coming up from the booth was like this side angle and you just couldn't really see what happened. But I got lucky because we had all these different angles. But this was the national championship too. You know, this was aired on national television. Um, it was a pretty big deal. Think if it was just one week earlier in the semifinals and they didn't have anyone recording it. You know, they just had our kind of own independent guys up there in the tower doing it just so we could review film the next day. Um, I got lucky in a lot of ways. And if that was, you know, a big football game, man, you're thinking about semifinals and stuff like that or a big bowl game for college football, they would have angles everywhere. And, uh, and I think they would have been more on it from a governing body perspective because maybe now's a good time to jump in of how much USA rugby dropped the ball there. Um, it wasn't good because then when we did find out that what happened was illegal, we were looking forward to be investigated. You know, a player got injured in a USA rugby sanctioned event on national television. This needs to be looked into. This needs to be prevented from happening again. So my coach, Jack Clark, um, who was a leg- legendary coach, in the American rugby community sent over this evidence to USA rugby. Um, it took about a month before he, he was just browbeating them to open up this investigation that they actually did it, you know, and they put together a committee to review it, um, send it over to a world rugby guy who's over in Seattle. And five months later, they came back and they said, we see nothing penalizable um, by the perpetrator. In fact, like I said earlier, Robert is at fault because his head was below his shoulders in the mall and they disregarded the fact that I was pinned into that position by an illegal headlock, you know, bind. Um, they're not going to do anything about it, you know? And then here's the other thing is on this form, it says like, did you interview the officials, you know, referees? No. Did you interview the perpetrator? No. Did you interview the victim? No. Coaches? No. Bystanders? No. They completely mailed in this investigation. They weren't even looking at all the footage and videos that we gave them. They just tried to brush this thing under the rug. It was absolutely ridiculous. And what was bad about it was not for my sake, because I broke my neck and I will never play rugby ever again. But there are so many people in this world and in this country who play rugby. USA Rugby is the governing body from the bottom level of youth to as high as it goes. You have eight-year-olds who are playing under these rules. And when they make these sorts of decisions, it sets a precedent. And that precedent was, it doesn't matter what rule you break, how much proof there is against you, and what the outcome is. If you get away with it in the moment, you're good. We will not do anything about it. You can break someone's neck, and we won't do anything. And that was just absolutely terrible. You know, and then fast forwarding three more years, it was about three months ago that they did make a statement saying that their process was flawed and that they started way too late and that it should have been more thorough, but they still wouldn't say that it was a red card offense. They just wouldn't say it. But that happens anywhere else. Does it happen to other players? I'd be shocked if it didn't. No, but if that was happening in, say, Europe... Oh, if it happened, 
yeah. that's probably okay. There's, I won't say the st- the standard of play is any higher, and if it's televised, even if it was like social mm. media wise, okay, is 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 ultimately the the officiating. Well, they are they are human at the end of the day, but obviously he's right. Let he's let the ball slip massively because. Five imp- infringements is pretty bad. It's pretty shocking. You yeah. probably allow yeah. allow somebody the grace of one, two. Right. Coach probably be infuriated by three, but not five or yeah. six in one instance. Um, so ultimately, that comes down to well, leadership that you talked about with the coach, but obviously the hierarchy. That mm-hmm. there's no discipline because. You know, we we fast forward probably to the World Cup last year. Officials mm-hmm. made mistakes in in games in pool play. Poof, you're pulled. Mm-hmm. You've made too many mistakes in this one game on ultimately the pinnacle of, of rugby stage. Right, going to be repercussions. It can't happen. And then obviously the the officiating the there and after because of some of the that officials' decisions. Changed ultimately. I think with the knockouts, they probably went back a little bit in terms yeah. of what well, we're, we're referring a little bit too probably harshly because he was a little bit too lenient. Mm-hmm. Let's rein it back because it's it's knockout play now, and it's a little bit more. We have to give players a little bit of grace. Go back to okay, my mother's side, the family's Welsh. Sam Warburton. Dropping the dude on his on his neck. Yeah, it wasn't deliberate, but that was a red card. It should have probably been yeah. back. Or what were we talking about? Thirteen years ago, that was a yellow card offence. But that referee took it on himself to. Well, you've not dropped the you've not dropped the player safely. Did it have an outcome on the game? Definitely. Could Wales still have yeah. won that semi final? Yes. Would they have won the match with 15 players? I would probably say yes, because New Zealand wanted to play Wales because those are the two best teams in that tournament. And, and be it a probably very patriotic Welsh person as I am, mm-hmm. that was probably as close as we were going to come to winning a World Cup, uh, that we have, have done on a few occasions. Uh, yeah. We probably could argue and say, you know, the eras of, you know, the legendary teams from the 70s were world beaters. Uh, and Welsh people could probably say, well, if the World Cup was around in the 70s, we'd have a couple. But you can't say that because it didn't come into existence till the late 80s. Right. Um, let me ask you this then, Rob, and ask you from an American perspective. Do you ever think the the 15 side of the game will ever come close to, well, knockout play? Or do you think it's too too difficult because of obviously the skill the key skill positions of nine and ten are somewhat lacking or do you think i'm giving them a rough deal i really don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that america could eventually work their way um to being a dominant player on the world rugby stage if the momentum continues the way it's going um i don't see why not i think Anybody that I talk to, it doesn't matter where they're from, they agree that American athletes are just elite. We've got some really great athletes here. They're just not really being used in rugby. Um, you know, they're playing kind of more of these major sports. But everyone I really talk to, they agree that, you know, if America were 
to really put their players into the sport, it would be a force to be reckoned with. Um, you know, and there's a lot of international minds that have entered the American rugby scene too, and can really give us a lot more from that kind of tactical and for net finesse perspective of how the game works. Um, there's some, there's some real room for improvement. There's some real promise and I hope it does happen. Uh, I really do. I think that'd be good. I think it'd be good for rugby. Um, you know, just to increase that level of competition over here in this region of the world where we just don't really get noticed at all in the game. Um, I think that, I think that'd be pretty cool. And I I think it absolutely can happen. Do you think the U S and Canada are somewhat forgotten after it, you know, because obviously Argentina is punched above their weight for so long. Ultimately Mm -hmm. when it came to the table as what, which championship they were going to enter. Was yeah. it going to be the Six Nations or was it going to be the Rugby Championship? Ultimately, you've gone with the Rugby Championship and have mm-hmm. elevated their game to another level. We're playing mm-hmm. the Australians and the Kiwis and the South Africans is a completely different game altogether. But playing the Australians and the Kiwis so often is so expansive that ultimately they've used a forward pack and now their, their back line is lethal. Mm-hmm. How do you think the US or Canada can kind of cement their place into, well, the Northern Hemisphere, because ultimately the Southern Hemisphere probably wouldn't work. Right. You know, before the World Cup, the USA was gaining some respect. You know, we had a win against Samoa, we had a win against Scotland, um, and then we, you know, we beat Canada. We were really rolling, and then we just got to the World Cup, and we just completely underperformed. Uh, just didn't play quality enough rugby to advance at all. So... I think we're already showing some signs of life, honestly. And I think we were gaining some respect. Um, you know, people are kind of looking over saying, what's going over there on the other side of the Atlantic? Um, there's something going on. So we are getting some momentum going. Um, it's cool to see. I just, I hope it expands. I hope it keeps going. Do you think that that's why the likes of, well, I know why the Irish did it as well, because it was using their, Irish community in the US to be able to, sh- they yeah. to come out and support them when they played the, when they beat the All Blacks in Chicago. Yeah. Do you think yeah, having m- more games like that of the countries coming over and, and, and ultimately playing amongst their ex, expats is going to help mm-hmm. grow the game as well? I think 100%. Absolutely. Um, especially bringing it into these big cities. You know, there's some times, like, you know, you talked about, like, Irish support, and um, there's a lot of Irish pride, I think. You know, you go to, like, Boston and Chicago, a lot of these areas, like, I mean, they're into it. And to have Ireland coming over, they're going to be in that game. But, you know, even so, I think if you put it in a major city, people like looking for stuff to do, and then they like these experiences. And if it's properly marketed, I think it would absolutely be there. You know, with the Sevens World Cup, that was fun. That was cool. I really enjoyed go into that and it was cool to see all these different people because especially you know in america they call it like the melting pot uh there's just there's all these different nationalities there's all these different people you know who are already here um you know they don't have to take a big plane ride to get over and be able to watch that game um so there's some opportunities for sure i think that would absolutely help the game and and also show what like you know real quality rugby should look like um that helped too so what's your take on Christian Wade going from rugby to trying to make it in the NFL? <laughs> um, I wish him luck. Um, you know, I don't follow individual 
rugby players that much. It's so hard, like, to even watch a rugby game here in America. You got to wake up like 2 or 3 a.m., you know, <laughs> do that stuff or just record it. Um, it's a really tough transition. I've seen that in America and people I knew just in high school and college. It was much easier to transition from football to rugby in America than it was from rugby to football. The mentality is different. In football, you really are fighting for every single inch. So if you're if you're getting stood up and stuff, you know, you're not trying to get to the ground and get another phase going. I mean, you know, you're just pushing as far as you can. You're staying up. You're just like clawing for every single inch. If you're doing that in rugby, then that's, you know, that's dumb. You're just, you're setting yourself up for failure in the next phase. Um, I mean, the contact's a lot different. You see in football, a lot of people hit with their head in front of the ball carrier instead of their head behind. Actually, that's something that's changing a lot um, to reduce concussions and head injuries. Um, but it's definitely a tough transition. It's really hard. Um, and then, you know, the skill sets, just different. And to come in and do that at the highest level, uh, you have a higher chance of getting struck by lightning statistically than you do of going to the NFL as a football player in America. It is very difficult. So, yeah, I mean, I, I wish him well. I don't know the guy personally, um, but I wish him well. But it is a challenge. Do you think more Americans should look at rugby as a opportunity to represent their country from that perspective? 100%. Ultimately, it's... Olympic sport, and well, I think the sevens game, well, you've seen it, it's more fast-paced, it's 20 minutes long, mm-hmm. it's pretty mm-hmm. much action-packed from minute, from minute go until the finish of, of, yeah. a, hoot, of a hooter horn, not a whistle. Um, <laughs> it's entertainment. Uh, I think where it's probably all started, you know, the razzmatazz is, is Hong Kong sevens, and, and I think... Uh, did you ever see the one that went viral of, of the Las Vegas sevens when the parachute had come down too early? Oh no, I did not see that. He what came happened? Down, uh, the, I think it was the third, fourth place match overran because it was still tied. He come down yeah. with the match ball for the final and landed in the middle of the pitch. <laughs> so the referee could yeah. see this guy coming down. And I think the commentary is <laughs> like, well, we can't do it. You can't make him go back into the airplane. Right, let him land, and then ultimately try and wrap up the, the 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 parachute as quickly as possible and get off the field so they can finish the game. No way. Yeah, I guess nobody. I guess just... nobody thought of that. That what if if this the, the te- there's no team winning at that particular moment? Right. Could yeah, I'm, might want to have a little fail safe for that one because yeah, once you're out of that plane, it's pretty tough to get back in. Yeah, that's crazy. And ultimately now, Rob, are you still quite close to Cal Cal University, even though you've long since graduated? Yeah, very much so. Uh, My rugby team has been immense in their support for me. Um, I could talk about this all day in that when I first got hurt, they had a schedule. And every single day, they'd make sure that someone came down to see me because I was in the hospital about two hours from Berkeley. Just being able to see my friends, like have that semblance of normalcy in my life, that meant a lot to me. Um, and then I went over to Denver, Colorado to do my rehab for a year. I was away for a year and people would fly all the way out, you know, halfway across the country to go see me. And, you know, we'd be hanging out and just just having that. It meant so much to me. It was something that I missed so much was just to be able to be with my teammates, be with my friends. Um, 
we were really close. And, you know, we all went out there on that field knowing that we could make a sacrifice like what I made. That could have happened to any one of us. It just so happened to me. Um, but it's a mindset. It's a very selfless mindset that you have to have to walk out on that pitch. Um, you have to be ready, ready to give a lot for your teammates. Now, once I returned to UC Berkeley, it was looking like a big challenge at first because the hills of Berkeley are immense. It's like San Francisco. If anyone's ever been there, you know, see a movie, it's just, it's massive. And, you know, here I am, I'm just like grabbing this wheel and I'm pushing it over and over and over again. And I'm about 200 pounds still. So, you know, that's a lot to push with my arms, which I had to will back from quadriplegia. Um, so what we had was a spreadsheet where my teammates would sign up for slots and it would be from class to class or, you know, workout to class or back to my apartment where they would just, you know, they grab a hold of that wheelchair and then help me get up those hills. And not just that, but being there and supporting me, our associate head coach, who's also our head strength and conditioning coach, coach Billups, he did all of my rehab for two years. You know, he gave more time and energy than any of my physical therapists actually have in the hospital or anything. And he didn't know anything about neurological recoveries, right? You know, he was a rugby coach and he knew how to get people strong. So I didn't even have to ask him. He just said, okay, Robert, what do I need to research? Who do I need to talk to so that we can keep you moving in your progression? So when I first got with him, I was in this very big supportive walker and I could go about 50 yards. Um, and then over the course of a year, I was able to go a thousand yards in that walker walking able to stand up much more efficiently the year after that I worked over to a standard walker you know just the one where your where your hands are about at hip level which was a big challenge for me um, I started out being able to go about 25 yards worked my way up to where I do 200 yards every single day now and then the sit to stand where I can now stand up out of my wheelchair and my walker entirely on my own um, that's something that took me 1,220 days to accomplish. Uh, and actually I posted on Twitter and it, it went kind of viral. I got about 3.2 million views. Um, so that was pretty cool. It's amazing to see this world of support that I've received. It, it makes it worth it for me because when I get up and I work out, I give it a lot. It's about three hours long. And by the end of my walking sessions, I'm screaming with every single step. I mean, I am putting everything I have out there. There are times when there are literally tears coming down from my eyes. I am struggling that much through the workout. And it's not just to get from point A to point B why I do that. And when I think, why do I need to take another step? Why do I need to take another step? Because it's a real conscious decision and it takes a lot out of me. It's for others. It's a commitment to others that I have made. And it's the biggest commitment I've ever made in my life. That's something I recommend for everyone to not do what you do for yourself, but do it for someone else. It can be your family members, your teammates, your coworkers, someone you don't even know, like in my case. But when we do that, it propels us to do something really special to be able to accept that help from others and then give it to someone else. That is just a beautiful cycle. Let me ask you this then, Rob. Any any point during that journey, had you ever contemplated trying for the U.S. Paralympic team for well, it's got multiple names for it: quad rugby, murder ball, yeah. or work to rugby? <laughs> had you ever thought about doing that? I totally have. Yeah. So over in Denver, Colorado, where I was doing my rehab, they had a very good team. I think they had about four or five Paralympians on that team. Um, 
you know, gold medalists. Uh, we compete in that stage very well. And it's not a lot like rugby, really. Um, I think they just took it out for the contact, contact aspect of it. Um, it's probably more like basketball where there's contact and you score kind of like football or rugby, I suppose you could say. Um, but you're just in these metal wheelchairs that look like they came out of a Mad Max movie and you're just laying it into each other. And I miss contact. I totally do. I, that was something that I just like fed off of, you know, when you play contact sports your whole life and then it's just gone. You're thinking like, man, I just need to hit somebody. Right. Um, you know, this sport at first when I was getting into it over in Denver, I wasn't allowed to make contact just because my spine was still setting and still recovering. It's not something that I've gotten into because now just as I graduated from Berkeley, COVID hits. So, you know, we're not going out doing a lot of sports and seeing people, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's something that came in my future. It was really cool. One day, the, uh, the head coach for the U S quad rugby Paralympic team actually visited me when I was in Denver and you know, we were chatting. So I think he might've planted a seed in me. I might be out there. Yeah. Well, ultimately that's the pinnacle, isn't it? For, well, rugby Olympic or Paralympic mm-hmm. sport is to, to wear your national colors. And, and oh yeah, I was fortunate to be able to do that twice. Yeah. If you asked me that, well, what we now need 20 years ago, yeah. I'd have jumped out the chances of one uh, to do two and to be able to do it on home soil. Yeah. If you get to do uh, that could be, I don't know, your, on your wish list. I must compete in LA 2028. Totally. And competition, like sports competition, there just isn't anything like it. It's just like, it's the simulation of life and it teaches you all these skills, all these tools, these skills and tools that I learned in athletics, they've helped me to overcome quadriplegia. You know, when I first was thinking about goal setting, you know, and okay, what do my goals want to be? At first, I couldn't really put a timeline, you know, of when I was going to be able to do anything. I didn't know if I was ever going to get out of my wheelchair, but I could build up habits thinking, okay, I'm going to go to the gym every day. I'm going to put in my eight to nine hours of rehab in that first year and now putting in my three hours of rehab and that really intense physical stuff. You know, I was in that habit of putting in the work to get something out of it. I learned that through athletics, Um, just being comfortable or being uncomfortable, you know, being able to seek discomfort. That was something that I learned through athletics. When I'm like, wake up the next day and I put in a leg workout and my legs weren't sore, I'd be like pissed off. I'd be thinking, man, I like, I didn't do enough. I just, I got cheated yesterday. I just wasted that workout. Um, When I got into my recovery from quadriplegia, it was those same principles that have helped me to do what doctors said were completely impossible. So I would love to be back out there and, and compete. Um, it builds lifelong relationships. Uh, so important to me that if I could go back and choose whether to play rugby or not again, knowing that it broke my neck, I would play it again. I absolutely would. Rugby gave me so much more than it took away from me. It made me who I am today, and I'm very proud of who I am today. Let me ask you this then, Rob, because I, I agree with you with that sentiment. Why do you think athletes are, ha- are hardwired differently to think at, even if people are kind of looking at all the, the negativity, negativity that has been in, in that life? Yeah. Why do you think we want to go and replay it again, even though we know that, yes, we would like to change certain aspects 
within that because we've learned from those mistakes and those yeah. choices. Why do you think we want to relive the not former glories, but we want to relive the good and the bad over again? Mm -hmm. I don't think it's something that anybody's born with. I think it's something that's developed. Um, it's a practice and a habit that athletes use that we're sitting in that film room and we know that our coach is going to be saying something about it, you know, a tackle we missed or a ball that we dropped, but it's a learning experience. We have to learn from what happened in that moment. And I know that it's fuel for me. So where I get out on the pitch and I start practicing throwing off my left hand, you know, let's say I had a bad moment in that game and I wasn't doing well throwing off the left hand. I know that's something I need to go work on. Or if I'm dropping lineouts, I take that as an experience where, okay, I need to start practicing with my hands. I need to start practicing getting with my lifters, jumping and grabbing these lineouts. Um, it's a skill that's built in our lives and it translates to everything. And whether you're in business or whether you're, you know, cooking, you're like building up a hobby or something like that. Those kinds of skills are very highly translatable and also appreciating your victories. Um, that's a huge thing because that's why a lot of us compete is to win. We want to win. It's important to realize and appreciate those victories. I mean, no matter how small they are, really, because if I lived my entire life just waiting till I'm not paralyzed anymore and I get out of my wheelchair and I don't need it, I would be a terribly sad person, right? I mean, I would just be completely depressed. But keeping track of these little victories, like the first time I could wiggle the toe, or when I can go five meters further walking today than I was able to go yesterday and treating that as a victory, really allowing that feeling to come inside of me and enjoy it. Um, you know, that keeps me going. And, uh, you know, that's a skill that an athlete has to have that it's not always about winning the championship. You know, that's not always the moment you can be happy and say it was worth doing this, but all those little moments we have, that's a skill. Obviously, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, Rob. And and both you and I, and I think we could probably talk for hours. And I think people could get that from the, the conversation. So <laughs> on that note, then, and this is a penultimate question I like to ask all my guests. If you yeah. had the opportunity to sit down with any athlete, dead or alive, who would that be and why? Oh, my gosh. I got to think about that question. That's a good one. Mm. So if I could talk to any athlete, dead or alive, he is still alive today. And his name is Vinny Pazienza. And he's a boxer. He's from Rhode Island. And you can watch it on Netflix, actually. Actually, the movie they made um, from his story. It's called Bleed for This. And he's kind of a total Rocky Balboa type. You know, he's kind of an Italian-American. Like, he's got a really close-knit family. He's a tough guy. He can take punches. And he works his way to the top and uh, he breaks his neck um, in a car crash. He was with, I think it was his brother-in-law and he was driving too fast. He broke his neck. Now he wasn't paralyzed. It was just the spine. It wasn't the spinal cord that was injured, but the doctor's saying he's, you know, okay, we can fuse your spine and then you'll never be able to box again. Uh, or we can put you into a halo, you know, when they screw uh, into your head to make sure that you can't move your neck at all so that the region can stabilize on its own. Um, and he was saying, if you so much as, you know, tap your head a little bit too hard and something shifts in there, you could be a quadriplegic for the rest of your life. But Vinny's just saying like, if I can't box, I can't live. Boxing is my life. So he takes this progression 
where he goes down into his basement where his weight room and he literally has the halo on. He's getting down on his bench press. You know, here's this elite athlete and he's grabbing the bar and his arms are just shaking. He's like, he's getting pinned down there, you know, with the bar in his chest, but he's like continuing to push forward and he has a fight. I think it was like in two or three months or something. It was absolutely insane how, how fast he had to repair his neck to be able to do this. Um, but he did it and he got with his trainer and he got all, you know, bolts back up, ready to fight. And he went out there and he won. <laughs> it was just absolutely incredible. And, you know, I actually saw that movie just a couple of weeks before I got hurt, too. You know, it was very fresh in my mind when I was laying there in that hospital, not really even certain if I was going to survive. It was cool that he actually commented on one of my Twitter posts for one of my rehab updates. And I'm thinking, you know, this guy is an idol to me and the things he's persevered through. And it was in the end of the movie something that really stuck with me and an interviewer was asking him like, uh, you know, I forget exactly how the question went. Um, but his response was that like the biggest lie that people tell you is that it's like, it's so hard, you know, to push through these things because it's not, it's not that hard. It requires a decision. That's as simply as simple as it comes. That's what it is. It's a decision to keep pushing forward through the adversity to keep going. People try to say that it's all complex and it takes all these things, but it's a real simple thing. Just that choice to keep moving forward. Those are the kinds of things that have resonated with me. So if I could sit down and talk to Vinny Pazienza, that would definitely be my nomination. If you had to summarize our episode into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? You can always respond in a way that makes you better. I would say that in my journey, um, the odds were completely stacked against me. And it would seem like there was nothing I could do to get better in my situation. I broke my neck. I had this terrible thing happen to me that people just don't get out of. It just doesn't happen. You put 100 people in a room and maybe one of them is going to get out there. Um, I was very lucky to be that one person because I made a decision to just respond in a way that was going to make me better. I wasn't going to sit back and let things happen to me. It took, it took a lot of hard work and it took a lot of luck. You know, it took a lot of luck that my spinal cord continued to develop. There's a lot of people who put in the work and it doesn't happen for them. And it took a lot of support, but I want everyone to know that throughout this conversation that whatever they're going through, no matter how difficult it is, I believe that they can always make a decision that's going to make it better. Um, that's what I want people to take away. So once again, Rob, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Athlete Podcast. Absolutely, James. Thanks so much. This was so much fun. So awesome. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thanks again for sharing your story. 100%. If you like this episode, please do share it with your friends and do let Robert and I know what you've thought of the episode by tagging us over on Instagram at robert.paler. So that's R O B. E-R-T dot P-A-Y-L-O-R and as usual at James O. Roberts 11 and again I'll spell that out for you that's J-A-M-E-S letter O R-O-B-E-R-T-S and the number 11 and again you can do the same on Twitter and Facebook and in addition if you had any follow-up questions don't hesitate to shoot them over as well and finally don't forget to check out rob's website 
robertpaler.com. And as always, don't forget to check out my free content at fitamputee.co.uk and click on the tab resources. But not forgetting, I've also started a new Facebook group, especially for the podcast, which you can find by typing in The Mindset Athlete. And last but not least, all the links will be in the description. You can find all the show notes at mindsetgame.lipson.com under the category general. So once again, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week for another episode of The Mindset Athlete Podcast.